0: Hello and welcome to Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we will discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean and South American history, as well as important texts in post-colonial literature. The English language is far from perfect, not just in the context of being unable to express love in as many ways as some others, but in the stickiness of our titles, be they diagnoses or racial stereotypes. In this episode, we're going to discuss the impact of labelling and the weight of words on African diasporic shoulders. Anybody that has read one of my papers, listened to a previous podcast or had a conversation with me will know that language and that she uses this as a tool for freedom, oppression and everything in between frequently appears Now I'm not a linguist in the sense of somebody that actively studies and researches language I'm a passionate language learner that has felt the impact of language use and misuse firsthand. The English verb to be fails to differentiate between that which we are from that which is passing each time we use this verb we are making a statement about who we are in a way which comes with an impression that such a state will be unalterable granted we can specify for example i am poor right now but i won't be forever or i am human the former can be altered but the latter not well hopefully anyway this is of course an simplified example but i hope you get the gist within the context of various discourses We can automatically understand nuances in order to not take things too literally as a permanent thing, such as age, something we know as changes as time passes. But what about that example of poverty? I am poor. That community is poor. Often these words can stick and follow people around like a stigma categorising them into boxes based upon characteristics, either accurate, or in many cases, assumed. Take, for example, the use of racialized stereotypes, the kind that have been used as a means to subjugate entire groups of people for centuries. During the long and painful era of the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans, the use of racialized phrases and assumptions became well established. For example, the origins of such pernicious descriptions used as justification for the horrors that too many African people have experienced can be seen during the last decades of the 18th century. Though not the only example, the book by Edward Long, History of Jamaica, released in 1774, helped to fuel a resurgence of racial stereotyping for the sole reason of defending and preserving slavery on the plantations, as well as promoting colonialism across the Americas. Some of the key sections of Long's denouncements of Africans as irredeemably inferior and perhaps not even human, Long's 12 years of experience in the Caribbean seemingly allowed him the status of authority on the subject of people of the African diaspora, and of continental Africans in particular, despite him having a lack of any first-hand experience of being in Africa. He dismissed the continent as backwards, concluding that it was the source of everything that is monstrous in nature. The legacy of Long's book carried through, and this has been echoed in men of later generations actually did visit a continent their views and opinions of the African people haven't already been contaminated by the words of Long and other so-called racial theorists before they even arrived. Of the many ideas and theories that seeped out of the debates around slavery, the one that still casts a shadow of the image of Africa is the notion that tyranny, war, and chaos are the natural condition of the continent. Long asserted that Africa was so barbaric and chaotic that Africans were better off as slaves, since slavery saved them from the worst fates that, he claimed, would otherwise have consumed them in their natural homelands. I'd like to focus for a second on that word slave. Now that word comes with it the implication that the person, the slave, will always be that. I prefer to use the term enslaved. Enslaved is more of the action of enslaving somebody, of using somebody's skills and using somebody's strength and using somebody's life to further benefit your own. However, the people that were taken from Africa were not slaves. They were enslaved. They were taken from their lives. They were taken from their communities. They were taken from their cultures, from their families, from their jobs, from their roles, their responsibilities. And everything... Everything that made them who they are... Was taken. Stripped away. Their names, their religions. Everything that made them who they are. Their very identities. To be replaced by... Slave. So when talking about the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans, I don't like to use the terminology the slave trade. When talking about the people that were forced to work in the Americas, across the Caribbean in the 13 colonies in South America, they were not slaves. They were enslaved Africans. So with this in mind, how has the legacy of such negative uses of language affected the African diaspora community in the 21st century? In order to discuss such a concept, we need to look at this in the context of generational trauma, which, a very stripped down interpretation, is a type of trauma that is passed down from generation to generation. It can be caused by war, disease, famine, death, natural disaster and other tragic events. This type of trauma will affect children's development for their entire lives. Many people are affected by something that happened to their family or to their ancestors, and this can be passed down to the next generation, even if they were not directly affected. The most well-studied example of generational trauma is that of Holocaust survivors and their descendants. Research has shown that children of Holocaust survivors present an increased likelihood of developing mental health disorders specifically anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. This was the conclusion found by a research team at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital led by Rachel Yehuda after a genetic study of 32 Jewish men and women who had either been interned in a Nazi concentration camp witnessed or experienced torture or who had had to hide during the Second World War they also analysed the genes of their children, who are, known to have increased, who are known to have increased likelihood of stress disorders, and compared the results with Jewish families who were living outside of Europe during the war. The gene changes in the children could only be attributed to the Holocaust exposure in the parents, said Yehuda. Global majority communities also continue to struggle with generational trauma and its accompanying negative psychological effects. For example, feeling inferior, negative coping skills, and so on. So the global majority have historically been excluded, mistreated, and deemed inferior in society, making the cycle of generational trauma difficult to break. The illusion that racism ended when slavery did has long been contested by those, like myself, who have experienced it, either on a personal or institutional level. From police brutality against the African diaspora, the Brexit campaign built on opposing immigration, to the anti-Asian racism seen during and post the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Evidence of modern racism is pervasive and, at times, very public. These events further highlight the systemic racism that continues to plague modern society and can trigger new traumas to be inherited by future generations whilst we could go on to discuss this in the context of the horrors of slavery and the impact that this has potentially had genetically, I will as an aside direct you to the pseudo-scientific video that was made by the BBC and aired before the 200m sprint during the 2012 Olympic Games coverage. The video discussed nature over nurture, and the message ultimately states that the way that enslaved Africans were treated has allowed for genetic mutations to occur, thus resulting in modern day athletes who have an advantage the white athletes in the context of running. A link to the video can be found in the show notes or at coloredsouls.co.uk forward slash references. After watching the video, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And remember, you can email me at jamie at What I want to refocus on for the purposes of this episode, though, is the use of language and its inherent stickiness. When discussing this with regard to ethnicity, and in the context of language and labelling, we can see evidence of the use of language in the consistent subjugation of the African diaspora. Not only can we see this in the use of the verb to be, as a means of fixing characteristics onto an entire group of people, but it can be seen in the adjectification of blackness. This is something that is not unique to Britain, but the use of black as a marker of differentiation to me is highly problematic. This links to what Franz Fanon explored as the violence of identification in the colonial context. It was in this that he discussed the means by which white subjects were able to accede into power, and how black peoples were othered and subjugated. In the context of coloniality, this power dynamic was culturally and historically shaped by the use of the bodily schema. That is to say, a system built upon the notion that the darker one's skin is, the less value they have outside of labor-intensive positions in society. This, Fanon described as the racial epidermal schema, in which a person is determined from without. Thus a person is not enslaved by the idea that people have, but purely on the appearance of a person with dark skin. For Fanon, this was an internalization of oppression which only fermented an environment in which a person became colonized mentally. Such a use of the racial epidermal schema was prevalent in post-war Britain, particularly in the context of mixed marriage. Whilst the majority of the country appeared to not have an issue with the idea of mixed marriages, Britain did operate a colour scale through which people were not only ranked by their skin colour, but also by their socio-economic situation. And by this standard, the more educated and socially mobile members of the black community had some form of immunity from the very worst racism in Britain. This use of the racial epidermal schema, although in some social contexts allowed a minor level of immunity with regard to social mobility, still came with the label of black. For example, Franz Fanon, himself often referred to as a black psychoanalyst, said in Black Skin, White Masks, "The Negro, enslaved by his inferiority, the white man, enslaved by his superiority, alike behave in accordance with the neurotic orientation." This would composite in the context of oppressor and oppressed in the use of language. In episode 4 of the first season of this podcast, I discussed the subjugation of self with the use of language of the oppressor, and I would highly recommend you listen to that episode. The use of black as an identification is so common and widespread that it creates social divides in subtle yet powerful ways. When specific writers, artists, or actors, for example, are written about or discussed, their ethnicity is often forefronted. What this does, in many instances, Is creating the minds of the people interacting with such media an expectation. Be it positive or negative, an expectation is created. This can be one of content, ability, or use of language amongst other things. Fanon also pointed out that when people like me, they like me in spite of my colour. When they dislike me, they point out that it isn't because of my colour. Either way, I'm locked into the infernal circle. When viewed through such a lens, the colour of one's skin becomes a mark of quality and a weight of expectation. In essence, you are representing your ethnicity, wearing it like a label that introduces you before you are even known. Black scholars. Black teachers black poets. Black as the label, black as the title. Black as the means by which you are able to vocalise. You speak through blackness at every level, with your capabilities being measured alongside black voices that have come before you. And you will become the standard for future black voices to live up to, or to deconstruct. This constant adjectification directly contradicts the colorblind multiculturalism which is often espoused by the British government and the various institutions that have, let's just say, checkered pasts with regards to racial inequality. Living through blackness as a means to categorise your position in society perpetuates the segregation seen throughout history in supposed first-world societies, in the organised and commercialised oppression of colonialism. I appreciate the original requirements to specify that a writer for example was black in the context of entering and diversifying white spaces however what concerns me the most in the modern context is in the need to still work through blackness due to continued preservation of said white spaces in my own experience of working as an educator my own ethnicity has been alluded to in many instances and i've often been the only dark-skinned adult face in the building Thus, when topics such as Black History Month came up, my name was often called in the subtle, passive way of asking without asking. As I was seen as the black teacher, the automatic assumption was that I had extensive knowledge in the subject. Granted, in my case that is partly true. But in many other people's lives, such information is not always fully integrated. Assuming that a teacher, writer, or any other person of the global majority has a deep understanding of African history or political struggles, It's just the same that assuming a person of British heritage, born in Cuba, will know everything about British history after passing through the Cuban education system. We are, after all, products of our environments, and for some, that comes with a desire to question the system that governs our daily lives. For others, that comes with an acceptance of the status quo. For the vast majority of African diasporic British people, that comes with the collective weight of the history of colonialism and empire. As a first-generation Caribbean immigrant myself, the Windrush scandal was one extremely close to home, and continues to be, carrying the label of black in this context. Comes with all the old stories of plantation slavery of the no worries man stereotype of the caribbean people the implications of laziness ganja use unintelligence and school experience which has had the intention of leading me down a path of educational subnormality in a way that is distinctly different from that which caribbean children had to live in the mid to late 20th century but just as nefarious for those children and many children of my generation, black signified and signifies a level of intelligence below the average. A way of behaving that does not suit that which is expected in Britain. That the only way to survive, not thrive, just survive, is through assimilation and the total negation of our roots and heritage. As a child, the notion of black, meaning anything positive, was not in question. Societally, this was not factored in. And in spite of the work of Fanon, Stuart Hall, Edouard Glissant, Peter Fryer, and many other scholars, researchers, managers, head teachers such as Gertrude Paul, and the millions of people that took to the streets in protest of the most basic human rights, blackness was still treated as lesser and as other. Yet deep within this categorization of blackness, we find what George Yancey titled white-embodied gazing. Now this builds on Fanon's description of the white gaze, which he challenged as being the only valid one, which had fixed him into blackness, forcing him to become shamefully aware of his black body and of debasing white assumptions about his history, defined by cannibalism, backwardness, fetishism, racial stigmas, slave traders. Yancey states that the white gaze involves the correlative constitution of a racialized field that normalizes the marking of black bodies. a relationship of white power. It is in this power dynamic that has created the illusion of blackness being inferior to whiteness. In order to perpetuate this, the maintenance of black inferiority takes centre stage. The systemic subjugation of the African diaspora has fermented an environment in which every victory is hard fought. Even now, in the publishing world, the importance of black-owned publishing houses is so salient that without them, the numbers of African diasporic authors would remain embarrassingly low. That we still need to consider ethnicity across all industry and who holds a position of power in order to ensure equity demonstrates a fundamental failure as a society and reifies the closedness of which white spaces as environments in which power is created and nurtured. The manufacture of African inferiority is a deep and complex topic, and in this episode we've only scratched the surface. It's an interdisciplinary system, which is the foundation of many of the major industries of our society. From the physical and economical subjugation and low-paid employment to the barriers to progression faced in education everywhere you go, the negative weight of the adjective black is sure to follow. Black underachievement. Black on black crime. Black market. The objectification of the creator, the educator, the worker implies that we will become from a position of lower value, that we'll have to succeed against the odds to overcome the very boundaries that have been constructed and placed in our way for centuries. From the destruction of neighborhoods such as Tulsa in Oklahoma, dubbed as Black Wall Street, which was looted and literally burned to the ground in early 1921, where as many as 300 African-Americans lost their lives and more than 9,000 were left homeless to the creation of the educationally subnormal Caribbean child in post-war Britain, the maintenance of inferiority has been, and continues to be, relentless. Like the shackles attached to enslaved Africans during the height of slavery, the mental shackles associated with black negativity are proving hard to shake. Whilst much progress has been made in ensuring that the African diaspora community are aware that black truly is beautiful, the incessant action of political and intellectual subjugation constantly threatens to undo any and all gains made. By maintaining a racialized divide in education, in the workplace, in positions of power, the intentions of Enoch Powell, although rightly denounced by his own party at the time and seen by the wider society as being destructive and venomous, are slowly being enacted. Whether or not this is due to fear, fragility, or insecurity is a topic for another conversation another forum. What we as a community can continue to do is to teach each new generation that black signifies beauty, opportunity, and power. It is through the positive reinforcement of self that we can overcome the horrific experiences of our ancestors, to be the treatment for our generational trauma, and to form a connectedness that will lift the African diaspora back to the levels of greatness that we deserve. Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And I will speak to you soon.